Hello and thank you for joining us here on the Growth Medium podcast. My name is Sara and I'm a first year medic here in the UK and I'm also co-host to the Growth Medium. And my name is Mem, also a co-host on the Growth Medium podcast. I'm a third year biochemistry student and a blogger on bimem.com. Just to give you a little insight about who we are, we bust myths in science and health by talking to the experts and sprinkling a little bit of controversy in there. I guess you could call us the myth busters. Severe eye roll. Anyway, we use evidence-based research as our weapons of choice. And don't forget, this season, we're overlapping culture with science. Absolutely. And to be part of all of this, all you have to do is join us every Monday as we learn more and grow our mindsets together. Enjoy and let's get on to the episode. Hello guys and welcome back to another episode of the Growth Medium podcast. Um, So today we're back to our nutrition myths and I'm quite excited to get started today because this is one of my favorite topics. (laughs) Honestly, yes, we're back to our nutrition myths. We haven't done many in season two. We've only got one other nutrition one, but in season one we just did nutrition. But regardless, this is a really, really interesting topic Um, and we've got a super special guest with us today. So we've got um, Jessie Hoffman, and she also shares our passion for debunking myths in science and health. And yeah. So Jessie is a um, registered dietitian, and she's, I think, currently doing a PhD in nutritional sciences and um, a keen researcher of the gut microbiome. So um, can you tell us a bit more about yourself, Jessie? Yeah, so my name's, uh, like you said, Jesse Hoffman. I actually am done with my PhD. Which oh, is, yay. yay. Yeah. I wasn't sure. <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. Um, I'm currently a new assistant professor at a smaller university that is focused primarily on teaching. Um, so I teach four classes a semester, so pretty heavy teaching load. Um, and then a little bit of research where I get to dive into my interest in the gut microbiome um, and gastrointestinal health in general. So um, it's been it's been fun. I've uh, just started that position in August. So starting a professor position in the middle of a pandemic has been a little <laughs> bit of a learning curve and probably not the most optimal time. But um, I'm thankful to have a job. So um, yeah, and I just like y'all said, I have a really strong passion in busting nutrition myths because they're so prevalent in society and. Um, I, there's just so much bad information on social media. Mm-hmm. Um, and I try to work to combat some of that a little bit with my Instagram account. We love that. Honestly. Yeah. I, I, you're actually one of the first people I followed and, um, I started a Instagram like ages ago when I was in my first or second year of university and um, I actually followed you and that's how I got interested into the whole nutritional science thing and the whole myth busting thing because I didn't realize how much misinformation is there Um, and obviously um, you just mentioned that your keen research area is the gut microbiome. Um, How did you get interested in that? Um, I got interested in it kind of uh, largely through my master's research, which was focused on more of metabolic outcomes, but we Mm -hmm. like dabbled in the microbiome and that was in like 2013, 2014. 
Um, so it was the microbiome area of research was even newer than it is now. Um, it's still a very young area of research. And at that point in time, it was just very, very novel, especially in the field of nutrition. Um, and so that piqued my interest. And then thankfully, when I started a PhD, um, I joined a lab for a, with a mentor that was very um, hands off in a good way um, in that I got to develop and drive my own dissertation project. And as long as it fell under the broad umbrella of what our lab was funded to research, I got to kind of choose what I wanted to do. Um, and the stuff that I, um, the stuff that our lab was researching were environmental pollutants that we ingest through dietary means. And so obviously the gut microbiome is at that interface. Um, and so it hadn't really been researched or explored yet. And so it was kind of like a logical next step, um, both to kind of incorporate my passion for better understanding gastrointestinal health and the gut microbiome, while also still falling under my mentor's broad area of research. Um, so I kind of got basically got interested in the gut microbiome through being exposed to it through research. That's really that's really interesting because I understand why you chose this field in a way because um, I was researching into antimicrobial resistance quite a while ago when I was applying to uni and um, came across because there was this specific bacteria that perhaps could combat um, antimicrobial resistance and then it just kind of led into the gut microbiome and then just all this research like fecal transplants um, trying to to help individuals with Crohn's disease it's so interesting but as well as you said the research is fairly new so just watching yeah. it grows is really um, yeah it's good um, okay, you're so all over yes <laughs> yeah what can I say it's really interesting okay so before we get into the myths a little bit let's kind of talk about what the gut microbiome is and honestly for me this is a very very new topic as well um I've just been exposed to it recently um but from what I understand the microbiome is kind of um a collection of bacteria that's in your gut and they're quite how do I say this? They're mutually beneficial for us, right? So we get benefit uh, benefits from having this bacteria in our gut and they benefit from also living um, in our gut as well. And we call them commensal bacteria, I think. And normally they are they can cause disease if they're not in the gut, if they're outside of their niche. But because they're in our gut, they tend to they are safe in there. So, and that's different from a gut microbiota as well, isn't it? Because a, my, a biota is more about the uh, endemic bacteria that we have, but also the other types of bacteria that can get into there. So you, you've pretty much spot on. The gut microbiome is, and we as researchers tend to use the term gut microbiome and gut microbiota mm -hmm. interchangeably. Typically, gut microbiome is referring to absolutely the entire collection of microorganisms residing in the gut, which include okay. um, like different viruses, different yeast um, and fungi and things like that. Um, where we talk about the gut microbiota, we tend to talk about just the bacteria, which is really what most of us are interested in. There is a lot mm -hmm. of interesting research on um, certain yeasts that exist within our gut that are beneficial. Um, and then some that are, that are may not be so beneficial. Um, but for the large portion, when we talk about the gut microbiome or gut microbiota, we're really just talking about bacteria. Um, yeah. And we have 
trillions of them that live within our guts um, and thousands of different species that have been identified. And like you said, they kind of exist within this like symbiotic relationship with us where we provide them with the nutrients that they need, a lot of the nutrients that they need to survive. They don't need all of the nutrients that we provide them. They have some interesting like cross-feeding mechanisms where some of their metabolites they can consume from others and they can feed each other. But um, largely the food that we introduced and that reaches our GI um, is able, they're able to metabolize in some form of a way. Um, we do have kind of a, a balance. There's a balance that exists within our microbiome that's important. And we often see this balance termed dysbiosis when things get out of whack. Um, mm -hmm. And so dysbiosis is kind of, it's a tricky term to use because it's kind of a relative and nebulous term, meaning that it is all it really means is it's just a um, difference than what what is considered healthy in that mm -hmm. specific population. Um, so if you're comparing individuals with Crohn's disease, without Crohn's disease, you could see like, okay, well, maybe individuals with Crohn's disease have dysbiosis based on the controls that we're comparing them, which would be individuals in the same environment without Crohn's disease. Um, so what dysbiosis really just means it's different than what we would expect and what we would consider healthy within that specific population. Um, and so when things kind of get out of whack, we do have pathogenic bacteria that live within our guts naturally. Um, like one example is Clostridium difficile, which I think it's been renamed, but it's still C. diff. Um, it lives within our guts. We all, most of us all harbor this bacteria within our guts. Um, the issue comes when it is uh, when we have the other microbes that exist within our gut uh, being suppressed by antibiotics or things like that, um, largely in a hospital setting. Um, so you're thinking chronic antibiotic use, pretty strong antibiotic use. Well, the C. diff is pretty resistant to a lot of antibiotics and it can then flourish in the absence of the, that competition. Um, so that is where you can kind of see um, how the, the microbiome is largely an ecosystem. I um, mean, it's just a like micro ecosystem that exists within our gut. Um, and they're all in competition from each other. Survival of the fittest, who can get the food that they need, who can find the location that they need within the gut to survive. Um, and so it's really kind of an interesting balance that exists within our gut. Um, so yeah, probably got off, off topic there, but. <laughs> no, but that makes it, it puts it into perspective, doesn't it? So can mm -hmm. you just like give us a rundown of, of what exactly the micro, the bacteria in our gut does and contributes to our health? What exactly is it they do? Yeah, so we're still learning this. Um, mm -hmm. It started off that we were able to sequence these bacteria that live within our gut utilizing a method called 16S rRNA sequencing. It's a unique uh, sequence that exists within all bacteria and then it has highly variable and highly conserved regions. And it just basically allows us to um, capture all the bacteria are there that are there using the broad sequence. And then they have these little variable regions within this rRNA gene that are unique to bacterial species themselves. So then we can sequence that and find out which specific bacteria are there. Um, so largely a lot of the research is focused on only utilizing that technique, which only tells us who's there. Um, it doesn't necessarily tell us what they're doing. Um, so a lot of the research early on was looking at who's there and what's that association to disease status. Um, so a whole host of various disease statuses. And so um, 
there were tons of different associations found. I mean, I'm pretty sure you can associate the microbiome with just about anything because there are some associations that don't hold weight. But um, for the most part, because the microbiome is so vast, you're likely to find some sort of association, which is a statistical issue that we run into sometimes. But um, the way we, instead of just knowing who's there, the field is now moving more into what we call like omics technology. So they're using metabolomics and proteomics and different methods to actually capture what the bacteria are doing and what they're producing. Um, and we largely think a, a, a large component of the way they interact with, with us um, is through the production of metabolites. So ideally, the bacteria aren't going to get into our circulation and go to peripheral organs because then you have sepsis and then that's a whole issue. But the metabolites that they produce can get into circulation and go to these peripheral organs. Um, so the field is largely in the, in the area of identifying microbe-like function, um, specific like metabolic functions that they have, and the metabolites that they produce, and how those metabolites impact us kind of systemically. Um, and they're, the large metabolites that they've been focused on from, from the start have been short-chain fatty acids. Um, which get produced from the breakdown of, of fiber by our bacteria um, because we as humans don't possess the enzymes to break down dietary fiber. And so naturally it passes to our colon and our large, large intestine um, un untouched by our enzymes and the bacteria love that. They can metabolize it because they actually do have the enzymes to metabolize it. Um, and then some of the, they produce three predominant short chain fatty acids, which are acetate, propionate, and butyrate. And they all have different effects, um, some both within the gut environment itself and maintaining like a healthy gut integrity and a gut barrier. Um, and then some actually have possessed functions throughout the body with regards to um, modulating metabolism, um, especially a lot of them don't get much, don't get far past the liver um, because a lot of them get metabolized by the time you, you get to the liver. Um, so that's, that's the group that we know the most about. Um, and then there's some, been some other topics that have come out, like uh, TMAO, which is trimethylamine and oxide. It's thought to be kind of like a negative byproduct of the bacteria um, of our microbiome in response to um, products that contain choline and carnitine. Um, so you're thinking like red meats and eggs, but that, um, that association has not necessarily held up um, with regards to we know that fish can also produce a high amount of TMAO in our body. Um, and we generally think of fish as healthy and cardioprotective. Um, so it doesn't appear to be like a one-to-one -one relationship. Um, and there's appear to be some like interacting factors kind of in the middle, but. Yeah, that's actually really interesting um, because I hear a lot about the different associations between the gut and, for example, like mental health. And I wasn't ever really sure about how, you know, how evidence these um, associations are, whether they were causation or correlation. And I actually was in a clubhouse chat room the other day uh, with Dr. Paula Littlejohn, Dr. Osmana, I think her name is, and they're all really uh, well-renowned uh, gut microbiome researchers. And a lot of the things that we were talking about were the associations between um, the gut microbiome and like COVID, for example, or the gut microbiome and mental health. So there are a lot of associations there. And that was really my <laughs> first introduction to the gut microbiome other than what I've seen on social media. 
So then let's go into the myths a little bit. And I think when we talk about myths in terms of the microbiome, one thing we really do have to talk about is the leaky gut syndrome. Mm -hmm. So can you give us an idea about what this is and um, why it's not considered a diagnosis in its own right? Yeah. So leaky gut is the name that was kind of coined. Um, It was, I believe, initially coined by researchers, but then it's um, been more adopted by individuals in the more functional medicine space, um, more integrative medicine, which is not to say that those fields are bad, um, but that that's just where I see it pop up more. Um, So the term leaky gut we, we, what we actually mean in the, like from a scientific stance is intestinal permeability. So our intestinal barrier is very important and there's several different factors that go into our intestinal barrier, including these um, tight junction proteins that exist between our intestinal cells. There's also immune mediating components that kind of lay at the surface of, our, of those cells. Um, There's a mucus layer that's very important to kind of help maintain that barrier as well. Um, And so what happens from an experimental standpoint is certain factors can cause that barrier to break down. And where Mm -hmm. that where we lose the breakdown of that barrier, um, our gut becomes, quote unquote, leaky. Um, And where that what that causes an issue is because different um, compounds and uh, bacterial components can just basically bypass through the holes that exist in the in the gut and get into circulation um, where our immune uh, system and inflammatory responses act accordingly as if there's an invader um, and then Mm. you can have inflammation and so the most common culprit of this is something called uh, or most well-studied culprit i should probably say um, is a component called lipopolysaccharide or lps It is a component of gram-negative bacteria that when those bacteria essentially die, that can release into, um, can get past the gut barrier and into circulation. Um, And then this is different than saying like bacteria are going to take over and enter our bloodstream because then we have kind of a septic environment, which is highly inflammatory, immediately life-threatening. This is more of um, chronic low-grade inflammation um, that can exist Mm -hmm. when this um, gets into circulation. Um, and LPS is a very well understood inflammatory mediator. Um, it's often used as a positive control in a lot of cell culture studies that are looking at um, like anti-inflammatory compounds or just looking at different inflammatory compounds um, because we know for a fact that LPS is extremely inflammatory um, and can elicit those, um, the cell signaling pathways that are involved in inflammation pretty, pretty strongly. Um, so in, that's from an experimental standpoint, and we can measure that. We have different methods in the lab to quantify those tight junction proteins, different immune components, even to at some points look at the mucus layer um, and quantify LPS in circulation, even though it's really hard to detect at very low concentrations. When you look at the clinical side, um, so that's what we can do experimentally. When you look at the clinical side, there are no gold standard diagnostic tests for intestinal permeability. And therefore it's not recognized as this a, a diagnosis right now. Um, that's not to say that it won't be in the future, but it's just currently not. Um, and what I see a lot is people being diagnosed with leaky gut or intestinal permeability without undergoing any sort of test or undergoing 
tests that are not validated. Um, and they get told that they have to go on this crazy protocol to heal the gut um, and strengthen that barrier of which there really is no like official protocol that we know of to like strengthen the gut aside from, you know, potentially eat a lot of fiber that produces short chain fatty acids that then help can support that layer. Um, so it's largely, it's leaky gut and intestinal permeability to keep it to kind of summarize. It's a thing experimentally. Um, as it stands right now, it's not a thing clinically um, that you need to be concerned about. Um, and we don't know enough about it um, to really be fear mongering at the level in which I'm seeing it um, in the mm -hmm. media. So it's just something to kind of like keep an eye out for. Um, and oftentimes I'll see people diagnosing leaky gut without any, like even trying to do a test, just saying you have brain fog, you have fatigue, you have these very like generic symptoms that we all at some point in our life can identify with. Um, and I mean, it can be, people are susceptible. Um, and that's what, that's what I hate. And that's one of the reasons that I am so passionate about myth busting is because a lot of these like myths target people at their most vulnerable. Um, say they've been to tons of different doctors, they can't find an explanation. Well, now you see this person on social media that has a lot of followers and they just claim to know it all. And the, you know, claim that medicine has failed you because of X, Y, and Z, you need to try this instead. Um, and I think, and I always to get, to get on my soapbox, it does come back to, I'm a dietitian, but uh, so in the medical community, a, a part of it, but it does come back to on us in the medical community as well to make sure that our patients are feeling like they're heard and feeling like you're not dismissing them and feeling like they're leaving with a sense of, okay, I have action steps. I, I at least have guidance on what's going to, what's going to happen next. Um, I don't feel like, well, we don't know. Sorry. Can't, can't answer um, your questions or help you out. Um, because unfortunately I've seen that happen to a lot of people. And then that just drives them to the, to the path that could be potentially even more harmful than not doing anything at all. Yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned that because just before this we were recording an alternative medicine episode and we mentioned that often when you feel failed by conventional medicine, that's what you turn to. You know, you mm -hmm. want to find an answer. It's natural, it's human. And it is up to the medical community to to step up and provide those answers. But sometimes answers can't be provided as quickly as people want it to. Yep. And yep. It's still being researched. People are researching it. It's just not, it needs to happen in a regulated environment. And that t takes time. Um, yeah. And so you were mentioning crazy steps to try and solve the leaky gut syndrome. Um, so I did come across a diet called the leaky gut diet. And so it starts off with, if just to give it a little breakdown, it starts off with First, remove certain foods from your body. So cut out, it was it d dairy, tap water, grains, refined yeah. oils, GMOs, the list goes on. Um, replace them with healthier alternatives, so healthy fats, etc. And then the third step is to repair your gut. Um, it does sound very familiar to the low food bat diet, um, yeah. this one that I mentioned. And I mean, I know this, the low food mat diet is suggested for certain patients with irritable bowel syndrome, um, but there isn't actually any evidence to support that this 
can help cure a leaky gut. So can you explain why perhaps this isn't the best way to to try and solve the, well, to heal your gut, as people like to say, or reverse dysbiosis? Yeah, so um, if you're, the issue that comes in is if you're cutting out foods, and if we're going to talk about the low FODMAP diet and kind of correlate it to if some of the stuff you were listing is the non-GMO stuff. It's like, there's, there's not evidence that that negatively impacts the gut as of right now. And people freak out about GMOs because they don't understand them, which is again on us as scientists and medical professionals to communicate the science better and not let people freak out about things that are um, relatively benign. Um, But when you're eliminating foods and specifically the low FODMAP diet is very therapeutic. Um, for some people, because basically what the low FODMAP diet, it is an evidence-based diet. So this is an actually researched um, diet that has been established for several years and has numerous different research articles on it um, and a lot of clinical evidence behind it. You're basically removing fermentable carbohydrates, which tend to be a lot of quote unquote healthy foods. um, And they tend to be a lot of foods that are higher in fiber. Um, So you can imagine if you're eliminating that, it's not it may help you resolve your intestinal issues and identify foods that you may have um, adverse like reactions to with regards to like gas and bloating and irritation. Um, But in terms of like supporting the microbiome and a healthy gut, we know that fiber is really important. And if we're eliminating that, um, obviously that's going to cause issues. And then with the kind of pseudosciencey diet that you, you found, um, I always, I always hesitate when I see diets that tell you that you have to eliminate all these different major food groups and they're not telling you to do that under the guidance of someone that's trained. Um, Because like the low FODMAP diet, I never recommend people to go do that on themselves because it is a phase diet approach. It is not long-term. You do certain phases for a few weeks and then you reintroduce foods and you find, you find maybe the one or two food that foods that cause you issues and you move on. You know that, um, I'm going to have a bad reaction if I eat those, and that's just how it's going to be. But you can incorporate all of the rest of the foods back into your diet. With this, I'm assuming, because most of them are like this, they're intending this to be long-term. Like in order to main, maintain a healthy, non-leaky gut, you're going to have to be on this diet long-term. And we know that from a mental standpoint and just a physical standpoint, that restricting and eliminating foods for your di- from your diet so heavily is not going to benefit your overall health. Um, And if you're eliminating different foods, um, you could potentially impact the microbiome, especially if those foods are going to feed the um, the quote unquote healthy bacteria that exists within our gut. Um, And I had something else I was going to say about that too, but I can't remember now. (laughs) Honestly, like, Sarah, when you were reading out the diet rules, the thing that stuck out to me was the greens, because I thought surely grains have a lot of fiber and fiber is needed for a healthy gut microbiome. So why are you going to cut it out? I think the specific, the specific grain was mentioned, I think the unsprouted uh, grains, because the idea was that it had a higher amount of um, like the the seed. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) So the seed hadn't sprouted. So the plant, the sprout hasn't used it up. So there's more polysaccharides, et cetera, in this seed. So yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to build on something that Jesse said, actually. Um, it's quite important that we realize that, I guess, I mean, you can kind of call this an elimination diet. But then the problem with that is when removing all these foods, you can't 
specify which one is causing you the issue right so for example some people may have a low level chronic inflammation from dairy but then you've cut out dairy and you've cut out grains you don't know which one's the one that's going to cause you that's been causing you the issue so like jesse said it's important to be to work with a registered dietitian because registered dietitians rds they do it in a very methodical way right so you eliminate perhaps one type of food for a set amount of weeks see if that has any issues with you okay you don't have any issues okay let's try like another food and remove that so that's actually something i thought was quite important to touch on because i see a lot of these types of elimination diets online and really they're not elimination diets in the way that the medical community uses them so they're they're just remove everything from your diet until you're measurable diets (laughs) literally I mean that's something that I've seen as a pattern right like on social media it's very much remove everything because everything is toxic and then at the end of the day you can only eat air or something like that and (laughs) like we've mentioned many times (laughs) like we've mentioned many times on the podcast right this it's no way to live is it so yeah, it's almost like people think that if you're not miserable, you're not doing it right, which is completely mm-hmm. like not how it's supposed to be. <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so on the topic of healing the gut, um, how effective are probiotics um, in this? And yeah, how how effective are probiotics in healing the gut? Yeah. So probiotics are essentially live and now we can include the classification of some dead uh, bacteria that we can introduce into the, into the gut um, to the ideas to um, help kind of bolster our um, gut microbiome and support it. Um, probiotics as the evidence currently stands now Um, are really only indicated for specific conditions and the probiotics that are indicated for those specific conditions are very specific to those conditions. Mm -hmm. So um, you have evidence of individual strains of bacteria that are indicated for certain conditions, which often tend to be GI in nature, makes sense. Um, So where we see probiotics not do a whole lot Um, at least in the literature currently, not to say that we can't find something eventually that uh, supports um, individuals that are overall healthy. But right now in healthy individuals, what we tend to see and some interesting studies have come out that you introduce probiotics, your core microbiome doesn't change. um, And largely you just excrete the probiotics that you just took in out. Um, And so one common, I guess it's a large flaw of Um, and limitation of microbiome research, especially in humans, is we're limited by the samples that we can take. So in order Mm -hmm. to sequence someone's microbiome, we often have to take a fecal sample, which we know is not fully indicative of the microbes that are actually living um, and staying within your gut, because we have some that exist both within the lumen, so like the whole actual physical hole that grows through our intestine. And then we have a lot of microbes that live along the wall. Um, in that like mucosal environment and kind of stuck to that um, mucus mucus layer. Um, and what research is supported is that those that live near the mucus layer tend to be more indicative of our core microbiome. And so in order to get a full idea of the microbiome that exists and like the effect of probiotics or any sort of dietary change, you really need to be sequencing that core microbiome and that mucosal microbiome and like taking basically a biopsy from your gut and a sample from inside your um, GI tract. 
rather than feces. But obviously that's invasive, really hard to do in humans. It's already hard mm -hmm. enough to get humans to collect their own feces and submit it for research. Um, so what we see with probiotics in healthy individuals is that um, they're largely, our microbiome largely resists whatever probiotics we put in um, to an extent. Uh, so a lot of the probiotics that you can purchase tend to be in the like billion range at best. Um, you'll see some that are listed in like their colony forming units or CFUs um, in the millions. Some will get up to, I think the most I see are about a hundred billion, which is a pretty good dose. But if you think about that in respect to the bacteria that actually reside within our gut, um, we're talking about trillions. And so I don't think people understand that there's a large difference between billions and trillions, um, so large that it's that's sometimes hard to grasp. And that when you're putting billions of microbes into an environment that already has trillions, it's really a drop in the bucket. Um, and it really is not going to do much unless you already have um, kind of an out of whack balance. Um, and so that's where we do see probiotics help with some specific GI conditions. Um, an example would be some indications for um, IBS, some for inflammatory bowel diseases, um, some indications for antibiotic-associated diarrhea. So adding some probiotics in to help um, lessen the diarrhea associated with antibiotics that a lot of people have. So reducing those side effects. Um, and then there's some others too. Um, and it's starting, the list is starting to expand a little bit more in what we know. Um, but as the evidence currently stands, it's not something that I would just go broadly recommend like, hey, you need to go take a probiotic to support your gut health. Is it going to do you any harm? No, but um, most likely you're going to be fine if you take it, even if you wouldn't technically need it, but you might just be wasting money. Um, and mm -hmm. so instead, I encourage people, the best thing you can do to support your gut health is just to eat a diverse diet that's rich in different types of fibers, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, um, and try to use that method to support your microbiome that's already there by feed, giving it the food that it needs to survive, rather than trying to throw extra bugs on there and making them compete for the food that is is there. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting because I think the whole marketing industry is kind of monopolized on this new boom in probiotics and it's, yeah. it's everywhere. <laughs> um, yeah. Like unpasteurized yogurt, the supplements, you name it. There's so many. But I, I did thought I did think before um, you just explained this that probiotics probiotics could really make a difference. But it does make sense that. It is a drop in the bucket. We have trillions in our gut and then adding a few more billion isn't going to change it. Yeah. Um, so how long roughly does it take to like to heal the gut or like evoke change? Uh, so with diet, there's research that shows that diet can start to change the microbiome within hours um, even. And so basically anything you put into your body has the potential, anything you put into your GI tract essentially anything you eat has the potential to alter the microbiome just due to the nature that some part of that food is just likely to escape digestion and absorption. And it's going to reach the GI tract and the microbes we have, because we have trillions of them, um, they all have different metabolic and enzymatic capacities. They're going to be able to do something with, with something that you, some of them are going to be able to do something with it. Um, and so basically anything you insert into your GI tract has the capacity to alter the microbiome. Um, so of course, antibiotics can alter it very rapidly. We would hope so. 
Um, mainly, not, not often are we trying to use, utilize antibiotics to kill our GI tract bacteria. Um, but as a side effect, that happens, and we do expect antibiotics to act very rapidly. Um, and then, like I said, diet can uh, induce changes within hours. Um, but we do, so there are some interesting studies that show um, that we kind of have this like flux of our microbial population, and it kind of correlates with the times in which we eat. So over the span of 24 hours, you'll see these shifts that occur within your microbiome, like they have their own, what we would call circadian rhythm. They have their natural like shift and rhythm to um, their like just who's there um, and who's active. Um, and that tends to correlate with meal times and, and patterns of eating. Um, and of course, different patterns of eating can shift the microbiome. So um, when we look at macronutrients, carbs, protein, and fat all have different interactions with the microbiome. Carbs largely elicit the most robust response with the microbiome because we classify fiber as a carbohydrate. Um, and then proteins tend to elicit a lot of different gases um, that uh, tend to be thought of as more detrimental. Research is still out on that one. And then fats, there's, of course, differences in the type of fat and their interaction with the microbiome. Um, so some say, some studies suggest that saturated fat may not be as good for our microbiome, whereas different monounsaturated fats um, and other um, uh, unsaturated fats may be um, more beneficial. But again, still very new area of research. But all of that to say that um, basically anything you put in your body has the capacity to alter your microbiome and it can happen incredibly rapidly. Um, but in terms of healing the gut, uh, I don't really, because we don't have a diagnostic criteria to start yeah. with in humans. Mm. It's hard to say like how long um, it takes to heal the Reluctant gut. Reluctant to call it an actual thing, healing the gut. Yeah. Yeah. And we we think about um, our, gut micro, our, our gut microbiome and just the environment in our gut is influenced by so many different factors that it's not just diet um, and exercise, but like um, your microbiome is influenced by the uh, root in which you were birthed. Um, it's influenced by your initial feeding method where you breastfed or were you formula fed um, because there's some interesting components in that that can shape your microbiome. Um, as we age, our microbiome tends to shift um, and through different periods of our lives um, in the environment that we are naturally exposed to. We encounter things that are going to shift our microbiome as well, who you live with, um, whether you have a dog. It's like uh, There are some interesting studies on um, individuals uh, microbiomes being very similar to that of their dogs because we pick up their we pick up their oh, poop. That's crazy. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's it's pretty funny. So um, I think we in the like gut space, people tend to get focused on like diet and probiotics and prebiotics, how they impact the microbiome. Whereas mm -hmm. that's like this one piece, an important piece, but then you have this whole other picture that um, also influences the microbiome that we have to we can't neglect. Mm -hmm. I was actually just about to ask you a question about prebiotics. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think prebiotics is kind of like primary to probiotics and they they feed our bacteria. I'm not sure if that's correct, yep. but yep. Um, is that in any way beneficial to quote unquote healing our gut? Yeah, so prebiotics is just a term for um foods or dietary components that stimulate the growth of those bacteria. So basically they, they are the food for probiotic mm -hmm. bacteria that live within our intestine. 
Um, so I like to think of them as like Pac-Man and then the little like balls that you eat mm -hmm. when you play the game. So the prebiotics would be feeding the probiotics, which are the Pac-Man. Um, and there's no need to overcomplicate this. Prebiotics are found in fiber, essentially. A mm -hmm. lot of prebiotics, um, there's, there's a saying like um, all prebiotics, uh, it used to be all prebiotics are fiber, but not all fiber are, is prebiotic. Um, now we do know there are some other factors that are prebiotic as well, but largely most of our prebiotics are some form of dietary fiber. Um, and it's not necessary to go buy a prebiotic supplement to get this. You can get plenty of prebiotics just from eating a diverse diet that includes fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and legumes um, without even like going to supplement with a prebiotic. Um, I tend to steer people away from supplementing with prebiotics. Um, because some of the ones that they use are highly gas producing and not tolerated as well. Um, if you can tolerate it, great. But I find that a lot of people can't tolerate it that much. And it's a really like big bolus of just like fermentation capacity that you put into your gut. And you're like expecting these like beautiful GI outcomes from, oh, I'm taking a prebiotic now. And you're like, why am I, why do I look like I'm six months pregnant now? <laughs> <laughs> the bloating must be serious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh gosh. Okay. But can can yeah. you go a bit too far with the with the fiber? Is there oh, yeah. such a thing as too much fiber? So what exactly happens if if you do take too much fiber? So um, we have different types of fiber. So it depends on what type you're eating too much of. Um, largely, we classify fibers, and the most common classification is soluble and insoluble. We have different methods to classify it too, based on like fermentation, like we were talking about too. Um, but largely when we're talking about physical characteristics, um, soluble and insoluble tends to be what most people um, will resonate with and understand the most. So these both have different impacts on like the transit time. Um, so the length of time that food moves through our GI tract. So we have insoluble fiber. It doesn't absorb water because it is insoluble mostly in water. And so what it does is it kind of speeds through our GI tract and kind of acts like a broom and just keeps things moving. Um, so if you're eating too much insoluble fiber, you can have pretty loose stools, diarrhea, very common. Um, and then if you're eating a lot of soluble fiber, it binds water. Um, so when it binds that water, it's naturally slowing things down. Um, and we also have fibers that are more gelling too, um, that also slow things down as well. And they form like gels in our stomach, which is great for satiety um, and great for um, different aspects of like lowering, helping lower cholesterol and things like that. But what happens is that's if you're eating way too much in uh, soluble fiber and gel forming fiber, you're slowing down that movement. And so you may end up with constipation, um, especially if you're not drinking adequate water. So if you go and bump up your soluble fiber intake a ton and don't uh, include an increase in water with that, it's a recipe for constipation. Um, so there's absolutely such a thing as too much fiber. And what's interesting is what's going to be too much is going to vary from person to person. So the recommendations um, for like an adequate intake of fiber um, tend to be 14 grams per 1,000 calories. So that would put around a lot of us consuming, you know, about 25 to 30, 35 grams of fiber a day as like a good starting point. I know people that can consume 50, 60, 70 with no issues. Um, I know some people that can't consume more than 25 without having issues. Um, so it's, it's going to be largely variable. Um, and so, uh, but we do want to make sure people are getting enough fiber. So um, that 
14 grams per 1,000 calories is really a good like starting point. Um, but if you find that you're eating 14 grams of fiber straight through your entire day and maybe you're eating 2,000 calories, that's not to say that you need to take 14 and automatically go up to 24 or 25 grams of fiber a day or, um, or 28, sorry, um, that you need to go up that high of fiber a day because your gut kind of has to adapt <laughs> to the level mm -hmm. of fiber. So what I tend to recommend people is like increase the fiber slowly, gradually, maybe three to five grams over the course of a week. Don't jump from 14 grams to 30 grams um, overnight um, and expect to have a great GI uh, response. Uh, no, I was going to say I can attest to the discomfort because there was one time, um, like normally I eat white rice, like I'm South Asian, I'm Bangladeshi. And so white rice is like our staple. But then so I was like, there was a time where, um, let's say my bathroom routine was not doing great so I thought you know what we're going to increase our fiber so I went from eating like white rice with pretty like pretty much every day to having um like meal prepped kind of like taco bowls and then in the taco bowls there's like brown rice there's quinoa there's black beans not realizing that that has a lot of fiber so I was okay this is going to be so TMI but I was like so gassy for those like two days where I tried that and I was like what's going on this is supposed to be helping me out and then obviously I realized I went from having only white rice to like three different sources of fiber in one meal it oh, yeah no definitely like try to take it slow guys yeah titrate titrate yeah. up don't st don't just jump into the yeah. deep end that's what the general message seems to be balance inclusivity and gradually gradually increase it no don't hit your body with like a a whole dose of of extra fiber. <laughs> yeah. no. oh, okay. but, um, thank you so much, Jesse, for talking to us about all this. I think this is where gonna where we're gonna wrap up the episode. Um, it was really interesting. I think the gut microbiome. There's a lot of complexity around it because it is such a huge thing. But as Sarah said, it comes down to balance and basics, doesn't it? Um, you know, just making sure that you're feeding your yep. microbiome with the fiber uh, gradually of course gradually um and yeah um I think that's all I have we'll have all our references and show notes and of course all of Jesse's links in the sh uh, in the show notes uh we'll have them on our website as well make sure to check out Jesse on um Instagram her content is really really helpful it's really um enlightening I'd like to say like obviously I don't know anything about nutrition other than yeah what I learned in, no I don't know anything about nutrition let's just say that and um so Jesse's Instagram's really useful for like kind of breaking down what you might see on Instagram and on YouTube so yeah a lot of informative inf infographics that are really super helpful so thank you so much Jesse again mm -hmm. It was an honor having you on here. It was really interesting. Thanks for having um, me. Yeah, th thanks for having me. It's been great. All right, that's great. And guys, don't forget to rate and review this episode, but that's it for now from us. Um, see you guys next time. 